our first storyteller of the evening, Harry Neff, brings us a tale of finding a familiar face in the crowd at a time when he needed one the most. So please join me in welcoming Harry to the stage. My sister Erin flew through the windshield of our brand new red Volkswagen van on Highway 17 in the Bay Area. She landed on the top of the car in front of us, her hair singed by fire, but otherwise uninjured. Several siblings had broken bones, but none as serious as my mom's shattered leg, perhaps symbolic of my dad's ongoing mental instability that made it difficult to have solid ground to stand on. My mom, 32 at the time, had decided three years before that seven kids was enough, so she was surprised when laying in the hospital bed, she was informed, you're pregnant. This is the chaotic world that I was entering. I was an accident in an accident. Fast forward to November 20th, 1989. I'm standing in the middle of Interstate 5, southbound, at the heart of downtown Seattle, facing miles and miles of stopped, angry commuters. The police are on their way to handcuff me and take me away. I'm 18 years old, and I'm at a crossroads. What was I doing here? Was this some longing for coherence in this crazy, mixed-up world? Longing for attention? Perhaps. The key word is longing. You see, my mom's leg was shattered, my dad wasn't there, my siblings were broken, and much like them and much of us human beings, I felt alone too deeply, too often. I simply wanted to feel wanted. One place I experienced this was my very close friend, Ben Parzibach. We met the first day of high school at Lewis and Clark, and it was on. It seems like we spent every day together from then on out. He had these kind eyes that flashed with creativity and humor. I remember one time driving around in his red Dodge Colt on the Lower South Hill, and we decided to start turning left and then right, just to test the fates and see what we came to. We would turn to each other wide-eyed with wonder, anticipating the adventure that awaited us and amused at our creative way to kill time on a gray winter's day. Another way we often seek to feel wanted is romantic relationships. I was first engaged to be married in 1974. I was four years old. <laughs> Enough said, skipping several heartbreaks and regrets back to Seattle, where I was waiting tables at Cafe Dilettante on Capitol Hill, and I met Stacy, a kind, beautiful, soft-spoken literature major whose insecurity and longing matched mine in a very complimentary fashion. She coped with feeling alone by finding people to take care of. And well, I really liked feeling taken care of and wanted. This amazing recipe for success somehow never <laughs> seemed to work out, so several weeks in, we had become just friends. On the night before being arrested, it was a classic November night in Seattle. Raining, cold, and dark, like Leonard Cohen mixed with Kurt Cobain. <laughs> I was lonely, and although I hated myself for this, I decided to go over and see what Stacy was up to. 
When I got there, all the lights were out. I went around to the back door knowing that this was closer to her bedroom and uncertain of what to do, my hand decided on its own and I knocked on the door and once again, harder. Embarrassed at this invasion so late in the evening, I'm about to walk away when I hear her footsteps coming. My heart begins to race as I imagine the warmth awaiting me inside. Stacy opens the door and before I can say anything, she says, oh, Harry, you can't come in. Harry's over. Her other ex-boyfriend's name happened to be Harry. <laughs> Harry was over and Harry couldn't come in. Out in the cold and sick with my weakness, I set out into the night, determined to fix myself of this imperfection. I weave throughout the U District, making my way towards downtown, gazing over bridges and looking out over the city, listening for something that I just can't quite hear. I end up at Denny's, drinking bad coffee, scribbling on napkins and nodding off, until finally going back to wandering deeper into downtown. The light is beginning to come out, and I turn the corner near Nordstrom's when I notice a couple of young men walking with a sense of purpose. I look more closely, and I can't believe my eyes. Ben! It's Ben Parzibach, left, right, Ben. We had just been backpacking in September. I had been up to Bellingham to visit him the month earlier, but we hadn't talked since then, no cell phones. Ecstatic and mystified, we stand there. Harry, what are you doing? Are you here for the protest? I explain about my wandering around all night, and he shares that he is down with some students for a protest. I did know something about the issue, and I was opposed to US government funding of the Contras but really, it probably could have been a protest uh, against puppies, and my answer probably would have been the same, I'm in. A protest at the federal building turned into being invited by some of the organizers to a full-on act of civil disobedience. And the next thing you know, I'm in the back of a Volkswagen van, much like the one in 1970, only this time I'm 18 years old, filled with a sense of courage amidst the unknown. The tension is high, and looking at Ben, I can see the nervousness in his eyes that I am trying hard to deny. The cars gather, and we go travel in a line going near the Denny's where I had sat hours earlier. Getting on the on-ramp, merging onto the interstate, we quickly get into position side by side on the highway and slowly come to a stop. It is exhilarating. I am standing tall, yelling out protest chants, the people united will never be divided. Ben and I, glancing off and on at one another, wide-eyed with wonder. We never saw this coming, and I'm still learning to see. Thank you. Please welcome to the stage, Glenn Ward. So it was 1995, and I flew into Jackson, Mississippi, about 150 miles away from where Robert Johnson had his crossroads moment. So you know you're in landing in Jackson, Mississippi, because when you get off the plane, that humidity, boom, hits you, and you hear a lot of southern accents in that, in that uh, jetway. I was there just to visit my, my parents. I was uh, in my mid-20s. A visit to your parents in Mississippi 
if your parents are from Mississippi, revolves around food. So when I got off of, off of the plane, I knew, for one, we would be stopping uh, near the Ross Barnett Reservoir and picking up some dried ribs. Yum. I knew, for a fact, that there would be a cooler in the back of my parents' Taurus, which, which there was, filled with crawfish and shrimp. God, I was glad to be back home. So I went home to, to my parents' house, had a couple, couple lazy days, some, some great breakfasts with tons of bacon, lots of sausage, just super duper lazy. The humidity just doesn't allow you to do all that, all that much. After a few days of just chilling out with mom, I decided I was bored. And so in the back of the kitchen, there's a door that leads up to a bonus room, and, and up in that bonus room, like I'm sure in a lot of families here, is the old family file cabinet, and I was bored. So it is close, again, it's the Mississippi Delta. There are crossroads to be had, and these family, these family files, although it just looks like a regular gray honed cabinet, is the Mississippi Delta. It's not, it's not what you think. So I go upstairs, go into the bonus room right above the garage, and I jiggle the file cabinet. It comes open, and boom, the file cabinet ru rushes to, to the front. And I open up the file folder, and there's a German document in there. Now, I had just graduated from, from school as a social science major with a, with a minor in German, but I sure didn't understand this document. And so I took it down to my mother, and I said, hey, Mom, what's, what's going on here? And she takes it out of my hand. And I was like, oh, game on. <laughs> this is awesome. This is way before 23 and me. So a couple days go by, and, you know, I'm the baby in the family, and I just kept bugging her and kept eating. And anyway, <laughs> she goes, and finally, she said, okay, here's, here's the document. And it has my grandfather's name on it, Chief Engineer Jew. And it has my grandmother's name, Seamstress, next to it, and Jewess. Now, again, this is way before 23andMe, and I wasn't sure, again, why it was such a big deal, but it was, it was a big deal. So anyway, I fly back to Seattle, and the first thing I, I do, because uh, when, when, when I cause problems, it, or there's just, it's not really pro it wasn't a problem, it's just an energy change in my family, I go to bookstores. So I went to Half Price Books in, in South Center, and I picked up Judaism for Dummies, because I was like, yeah, I don't know anything about this. It, it, the book just leapt off of the shelf. And I went, and I was thumbing through it, and there was a thing about Jewish grandmothers and, uh, and the prayer that needed to be said for them after they passed away, or else Jewish grandmothers really think that they really died. Of the, they don't really die if you keep saying this prayer. So anyway, I was like, okay, cool, great, grandmothers, uh, that, that's great. And I was going on a work trip uh, after that, and I put Judaism for Dummies in my bag, went to Washington, D.C. I don't really like to travel very much, and if I do travel, I always grab friends to, to go, go with me. So I took my best friend, and he and I went to Washington, D.C. So I told my friend about what I, what I had found, and I had had uh, uh, and we decided hey we're gonna go visit the Holocaust Museum because we're here in Washington DC so going there uh, to the Holocaust Museum we come out of the hotel and I have Judaism for dummies just stuck right underneath my my shoulder because I just I was reading it that was the book I was reading at the time It was pretty small thin and at the bottom of, of the steps there's four Orthodox Jewish guys I, I could have made that, this up for Pivot, but I did have my best friend right, right next to me, and there's four Orthodox Jewish guys in, in uh, dressed like ortho Orthodox Jewish guys with a Chrysler K car, and unbeknownst to me, there is a holiday where they go out and they try to find unaffiliated Jewish guys, which I guess I was after I discovered my mom's birth certificate, and they asked me about, about hey, are, are, I think this is a standard question on this holiday, is your mom Jewish? And I was like, well, as a matter of fact, yes. And so, um, and this was in the car ride to the Holocaust Museum because the first thing they asked me was, uh, can we help you some way? And I was like, well, yeah, we, I'd like to go to the Holocaust Museum. <laughs> so, so anyway, this, 
what, unbeknownst to me, what this holiday is all about is not only finding unaffiliated Jewish guys, but it's a big thing for them if they can tie on, it's called tying on to fillin, where they put a box on your head, another box on your, fore, on your forearm, and they wrap leather, leather, I'm new to this, uh, wrap, wrap leather, leather uh, band around you, and you say this very ancient prayer. So there I was in the middle of Washington, D.C., cars just ripping by me, and I got one box on my head, I got one box on my forearm with my thick Mississippi accent, saying say Hebrew, saying say the prayer. So, so anyway, uh, fast forward uh, to about three weeks ago. So this has been 20, 25 years now. And it was my 13-year-old's bat mitzvah. I'm going to try not to get emotional here because that, that's what happened two weekends ago. I'm, I'm done. I think I'm done crying. So my grandmother, again, going back to that book that I got in Seattle, had these, had these big, big purple eyes. And my daughter, my 13-year-old, inherited those eyes from, from, my grand, from, from my grandmother. So at the bat mitzvah, at the, at the end of it, I got a chance to, to address the, the, the community here in Spokane. And looking at my daughter, who is a third-generation Holocaust survivor, that's what it turned out to be. That, that that crossroad was was me understanding that I was the last one standing, that I was a second-generation Holocaust survivor. And there was my daughter with the big, big purple eyes that my grandmother has right next to me up in front of the, the entire Spokane Jewish community, and I thought, this is the most beautiful gift I've ever been given. Thank you. Our next storyteller brings us into a moment in her life when she made a decision to reimagine herself and how that in turn changed the way that she sees the physical world. Please welcome to the stage, Jerusha Emerson. The card from my mother read, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeing new landscapes, but in having new eyes. I read it at 30,000 feet and smiled because at 16 years old, I was off on my first voyage of discovery, confident that new landscapes would give me new eyes. It didn't occur to me that I had read the quote wrong. One month later, and I was falling slow motion and feet first into a Venetian canal. The stone steps slipped away as I splashed into the midsummer stink. I had just enough presence of mind to reach out for the last step as the thought of what I could smell seeping into my eyes and ears gave me agility that I have never possessed. <laughs> the step was green used to seeing the underbellies of gondolas 10 months out of the year. I held on by my nails as my friends who had my camera staggered to stand through their laughter and models in Dolce and Gabbana linen paused on the bridge to observe the curious American submerged, mostly submerged, in water that was both briny and raw. I dried out walking the old alleys and standing in the doorways of shops that I was too embarrassed to enter, berating myself for such a stupid mistake. Until that night, when I returned to the campsite and every other high schooler wanted to know what had happened, and I discovered having a good story to tell gets you a lot of attention. It's a way of inventing yourself. Venice wasn't my first baptism. I was seven years old, standing waist-deep in a frigid baptismal in my favorite purple corduroy dress. 
I had come to this moment through much deliberation, and when my dad asked me if I knew what it meant to get baptized, I said, yes, it is a public demonstration of a personal conviction. Clearly, I had been listening on Sunday mornings. It was customary before getting dunked to share your story, your testimony, and when my mom asked me what would I share, I told her I didn't have a testimony. I was seven years old. I had never done drugs. I didn't feel particularly lost. I had never heard the audible voice of God. Um, I simply felt from a young age that Jesus loved me, and I wanted everybody to know that I loved him too. I didn't think it was a very interesting story, but it was all I had, so that's what I shared. As I came up out of the water, to the cheers and clapping of my friends and my family, a deep sense of belonging descended on me. And I may have only been seven years old, but I recognized that even if you don't think it's interesting, if you share your story, it begins to build belonging. Unfortunately, that day in Venice, I exchanged belonging for being interesting, belonging for having a good story to tell. I was 26. 9-11 had happened. The world had changed. And I was in Tanzania. Cleansing water was pouring over my head, my eyes, my ears, and washing away the dust of a long day. I was passing soap back and forth over a tall wall between my cousin and I as we discussed our day walking and working and generally being wazungu, very white women in a new land. The, sun, the moon was coming up over Lake Victoria and I had been enamored seeing this lake in the distance, a lake the size of Ireland. But I had been told and taken Mama Anna seriously when she said, Wazungu, don't touch the lake. There are things in the lake that you are not accustomed to, that you do not have immunity for, so you do not touch the lake. So I did not touch the lake. The next morning, waking up in our bungalow, I listened to the sound of a mule making its way up from the lake to our bungalow, and then it stopped and started drinking at our water barrel. Kind of gross. And then it sounded like he was peeing. And then I thought, oh, oh no, no, that's not the mule making the noise. There is a person emptying canisters of water into the rain barrel, water that has come from Lake Victoria that I bathed in last night. And I could feel the amoebas and the bacteria settling in underneath my skin. Oh, good Lord, it was Lake Victoria in the rain barrel. Something else was settling into, though. And I realized that it didn't matter what new lands I went to, and it didn't matter what new stories I gained. I was not gaining new eyes. I could not get new perspective. I kept imposing my perspective. I kept seeing rain barrels full of water when it hadn't rained for three months. A month ago, 2016, and I was new to Washington. My family had picked up and transplanted from Los Angeles. It was a difficult move, and we were truly um, without community. We didn't belong. A new friend generously invited me to Autobahn Park on a hot August afternoon. And standing there pushing my small son, I looked over as sprinklers came on in the middle of the day. I was burned out. And seeing these sprinklers in the middle of the day suddenly sparked something. And I turned to my friend and I said, how is it that you have enough water to have sprinklers on in the middle of the day? In Los Angeles, 
we pipe in all of our water. You can't run sprinklers. I remember listening to sprinklers in the middle of the night for about 20 minutes. They would hiss and sputter as they came on, sounding like dragons unfurling. These sprayed generously, broadly, and refracted light back in a dozen different colors. Oh, my friend looked at me and she said, uh, we've got an aquifer. As a matter of fact, we do. <laughs> the Spokane Valley Rathdrum Prairie Aquifer, 322 square miles in two states, provides drinking water to 500,000 people. And it is estimated that it contains more than 10 trillion gallons of water. That day, having lived with so much burnout, it was as though I could feel 10,000 gallons of water underneath me, and I shuddered with the potential, the potential to belong. Two weeks ago, I was back in LA, standing at the gateway to the Natural History Museum, looking up through the bones of a humpback whale at a projection of water on the ceiling. When some writing on the wall caught my attention, I walked over, looked at it, and it was Marcel Proust's quote, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. And I thought, oh, I don't know. I sought new landscapes. I sought new eyes, and yet did not find the new perspective and exchanged what I had understood story to be for belonging to be interesting and entertaining to others, but to not belong was Proust wrong? So I went and looked it up. It turns out the quote is more of a paraphrase, and it's kind of a contradiction of the actual quote, which comes from Proust's second chapter of The Prisoner. The only true voyage of discovery would be not to seek strange new lands, but to have other eyes, to possess the eyes of another, to behold the universes that they behold, the hundred universes that each of them beholds, that each of them is. And so I have done telling my story and seeking my belonging. Will you please tell yours? Thank you, Jerusha. Our next storyteller, Alex Frankie, is going to share with us a story about being at the right place at the right time and how that can lead to a revelation about one's purpose in life. Welcome to the stage, Alex. One day, when I was eight years old, I came downstairs into my parents' kitchen to find my dad shaving the side of our family dog. <laughs> yeah, see, my mom was out of town for the weekend, and our dog, Nebia, a 14-year-old Great Pyrenees, had a big fatty tumor on his side, which, since a lot of my faculty is here, I feel obligated to call a lipoma. <laughs> With mom out of town, my dad figured now was the time to see if his ability to practice human medicine would transfer over into the veterinary world. Plus, he had almost finished a surgical residency at one point, so what could go wrong? He called up his friend Peter, a family practice physician who lives close to us, to act as, an, act as his anesthesiologist for the day. Peter came and laid down a sterile dressing, which was made of yesterday's newspaper. They, they sedated Nebia, and it was right in that moment, right when my dad had the scalpel, and he made the first cut, and the first drops of blood came out, that I realized that I wanted to be anything but a doctor. Fast forward about a decade, and I clearly forgotten that lesson, and I found myself at Tulane University in New Orleans as a freshman pre-med student. At Tulane, I was lucky enough to get hired as an EMT. It was perfect. I was gonna be an EMT, I was gonna love it, I was gonna get a bunch of great experience, I was gonna get cool letters of rec from all the doctors that I worked with, I was gonna get into med school, I could see my whole life in front of me. It was there laid out so clearly. 
I was exactly where I needed to be. Except, as it turns out, I didn't actually like being an EMT. See, I thought it would be all driving ambulances and saving lives, and it's really fun to drive an ambulance, but it turns out there aren't a lot of happy endings when you're an EMT. See, either your patients survive long enough for you to drop them off at the hospital and never see them again, or they die while you're taking them there. And you can kind of get burnt out, so it's easy to imagine. That, combined with the fact that a lot of the older medics that were there, people that had been doing this for decades, that were, at least in some sense, good at what they did, wore their apathy on their sleeves like a badge of honor. They acted like it was something to aspire to. And being 19 and naive, I believe that that's what you needed to do to survive in medicine. You had to just not care about your patients, and then you were going to do great. After about a year of this, I realized that I didn't like the person I was turning into. The empathetic, caring person that I once was had all but disappeared, at least any time I was around an ambulance or a hospital. And I realized that maybe medicine wasn't the thing for me. So I did what any 20-year-old that's read too much Thoreau would do. I fled to the woods. I spent a winter ski patrolling in Utah and was lucky enough to pick up a gig working in Yosemite doing search and rescue for a summer. It was amazing. If you ask any rock climber, they'll tell you that Yosemite is the center of the universe. And when I was there, I felt that. Every day started with a four or five mile run. I went swimming in rivers, I climbed on rocks, I chased a bear one time. And I know public speaking can seem scary, but chasing a bear for the first time is much scarier. I still did a little bit of medicine when I was there. I was doing search and rescue, and occasionally I would staff the ambulance. So I felt good about it, though. It, something had changed, and it was hard to say exactly what it was, but maybe it was just being at the center of the universe, that all of a sudden, it was better. I realized that I was right. Medicine wasn't the thing for me. What was for me was being a park ranger. I get to protect these high and wild spaces, the most beautiful places in the world, and I'd make them safer. And I do just that little bit of medicine on the side. This is what I was going to do. I was going to be a ranger. I was exactly where I needed to be. One hot August afternoon, I was returning from Yosemite Valley to my backcountry station with a backpack full of supplies for the next week. When the tones dropped on the radio, there was a four-year-old, and she was really sick, totally unresponsive, about two, two and a half miles from where I was. Being the nearest ranger, I said that I could respond. So I took my pack off, I took all of my food out of it, and ditched it in the nearest bathroom, which is gross, I know, but it's the only bear-proof structure, and I took off in her direction. The second I got there, I knew that she wasn't well. She was laying on the ground with her parents on either side, and she wasn't moving, she wasn't talking, she wasn't responding. Immediately, I started cooling her down. I ripped off her jacket, which her parents had placed on her because they thought she might be shivering, and I started pouring rubbing alcohol on her to get her cooled down. I also called for a short-haul rescue. For those of y'all that don't know, a short haul is where the National Park Service finds someone who is dumb enough to agree to dangle 150 feet below a helicopter on an 11 millimeter cord. It's awesome. Y'all should try it. <laughs> About 10 minutes later, what felt like some of the, ten, the longest 10 minutes of my life, two paramedics that I'd worked with, Jason and Lisa, were dropped off. Lisa started putting an IV in Maya's arm, the four-year-old, while Jason and I packaged her into a litter. We got her in there, and at this point, she had started to come to with a little bit of fluid and cooling her down. And off they went, back in the helicopter, down to Yosemite Valley. I spent the rest of the afternoon hiking out with Maya's parents. And by the time I got back down to the valley, I decided that I didn't have time to get back to the backcountry. So I went back to the search and rescue site, also known as the Hippie Rescue Commune. <laughs> there, I engaged in the tradition that we engaged in pretty much every night that summer. I was regaling all of my colleagues with my stories from the day, how much of a hero I felt like when I was calling in a helicopter, how cool it was to give them coordinates to drop it off, and how great it felt to hear that Maya was getting better. And it was in that moment that I realized what it was about Yosemite that was so special. It wasn't the fact that Yosemite is the greatest place on Earth in the center of the universe, although that is also the case. It was that I had a community there, a community that celebrated all of our wins together. It celebrated the times that we saved our patients' lives, the times that we felt like heroes and a community that also mourned our losses together, that was there for each other when our calls didn't go as well, when our patients died, when we did body recoveries for our friends. I realized that it wasn't medicine itself that was the problem. It was the lack of community that I had around it. And so, for the second time in a year, my plans changed, and I went back to being a pre-med student. I transferred, for the second time at this point, to the University of Washington as a junior. My junior year flew by, and I wasn't sure if I was in the right place. See, it's kind of hard to make friends when you're already a junior in college, and you've been at two universities in the past. And I was busy with all my pre-med work, and I was trying to do research and study for the MCAT. 
and I didn't really know if I was in the right place. But I sort of had my eye on the prize, and so I just kept going. Fast forward to halfway through my senior year, January. I had one med school interview and acceptance under my belt at an East Coast school, and I was preparing to interview at a new medical school in Spokane. <laughs> somehow, <laughs> somehow, I found out about a protest that was going on on my campus on January 20th of that year. Milo Yiannopoulos, a political commentator who essentially makes a living by spewing hatred and fear, was coming to speak on my campus. And I could not disagree with literally everything that he says more, and so I went to the protest. I remember walking into Red Square and looking up at the front of Kane Hall to see the words, hate will not divide us, projected on the front of that building, and just hoping that those words were right. But like a lot of protests in our current era of politics, violence started to break out. At first, it was nothing serious, people getting pepper sprayed, people getting shoved, people getting hit. And so being the good EMT that I was, I used my water bottle to flush out people's eyes, and I put gauze on people's wounds. It continued on like this for about an hour, occasional clashes here and there, but nothing serious, until I heard someone scream, hey, we need a medic over here. Something in their voice was frantic, more frantic than anyone else that night. And so I started moving in that direction. I burst through a part of the crowd, and I saw a man lying on the ground with someone holding his head up. He was a skinny man with a sharp face, totally bald, and pale, pale as could be. He was wearing a red shirt and a black leather jacket, and I will never forget the contrast between how pale his skin was in his jacket, and his eyes were just sort of rolling in his head, not really focusing on anything. And the first thing I thought was, wow, this guy must have gotten clocked super hard, because he was really out of it. And then I realized that his shirt wasn't red, he had just been shot in the abdomen. Immediately, I dropped to my knees, I cut off his shirt, and I just started packing his wound as quick as possible, trying as hard as I could to just get the bleeding to stop. No one had ever been shot and killed on my campus, and I was damn sure that that wasn't gonna happen when I was there. About 20 seconds later, 20 seconds that felt like about an hour, Seattle police officers came over and in the most literal sense of the word, kicked me off of my patient. It was the worst patient handoff I've ever been a part of and I hope it stays that way. That night, I was, according to the Guardian at least, an anarchist medic in the right place at the right time, a label that I did not choose. The man who was shot, who goes by the name Hex, spent the next month in the ICU at Harborview, underwent several surgeries, but has, since then, made mostly a full recovery, except for a good portion of his colon, which is now missing. But otherwise, he's doing well. That night, for the first time at the University of Washington, I knew that I was exactly where I needed to be. Fast forward a few months, and I was accepted to the Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine at Wazoo, after a brief stint on the wait list. At Wazoo, I've been lucky enough to find a community much like the one I had in Yosemite. A community that celebrates our wins together, that celebrates those days that remind us why we're here, remind us why we're doing this, remind us why we got into this in the first place. And also a community that's there for each other when we need to grieve. We have those calls that don't go as well, when our patients die, when we sort of forget why we're here. It's a community that I feel very lucky to be a part of. I'm only 24, and I know that I have many twists and turns left in my life. But for right now, at least for the next couple of years, I'm exactly where I need to be. Awesome job, Alex. And truly, there's nothing wrong with leaning into the label anarchist medic. Like, it's <laughs> Kind of awesome. Our next storyteller, Kellerin Millam, is going to share an account of standing at the intersection between an imagined home and the place where real roots start to grow. So please join me in welcoming Kellerin to the stage. So my story begins on an empty sidewalk in an artsy industrial district in Portland, Oregon. It's early evening, but the August heat still kind of lingers, so it's rising from the pavement and it's prickling on my skin. I stand facing two heat-baked steel doors that really, really, for all intents and purposes, should be wide open. There's a shiny chain that's training through their push bars and there's a massive padlock that seems to metaphorically seal the deal. 
It could be the heat, but the very air feels fraught with symbolic intent. So three days before this, oh my God, the door is locked moment, I'm with my husband, Michael, and we are cruising down Highway 1 in the California Redwoods. It is a beautiful summer day. It's a perfect day. My feet are up on the dash, Peter Gabriel's on the stereo, we are talking shop, and we are making plans. We're on a scenic route down to do a gig in the Bay Area, after which we're gonna hang out with friends for a couple days, and then we'll head back north up to Portland, do another show, and then start looking for whatever Portland had to offer in affordable housing. <laughs> so, um, from about that time, we had been on the road for about three years. We'd put everything in storage, we had quit our day jobs, and this had been the rhythm of our life. We would drive, we would meet people, we would play a show, we would spend good times with good people in interesting environments, eat, sleep, rinse, repeat. And it was a, it was a pretty cool life. And at that point in my life, it was the only life that I had ever envisioned. But life on the road can really start to fray your edges. And the idea, the thought bubble, of putting roots down in this super artistic, interesting, you know, urban city environment, it just, especially at the height of summer, like it felt romantic. It just felt right. So, we pop out of the sheltering arms of the Redwoods and briefly merge with the chaos of South Five. And Michael's cell phone getting reception suddenly starts blowing up with messages. It had been his turn to drive, so we pulled as far off onto the side of the freeway as we possibly could so he could figure out what it was the world was trying so desperately to tell him. And I just remember so clearly he was listening to messages and he was making phone calls and I just had this strong sensation of being a passenger and this strong sensation of being in limbo. And our little van was getting rocked every time a semi drove past. Gonzaga University was suddenly in need of a guitar instructor. A departing employee informed the staff that the only person who could fill this position short notice and fill it well was Michael Millam and good luck finding him. They did find him on a perfect summer day and he was very, very interested. According to my mother, I started singing nearly as soon as I could talk, and I started writing songs about as soon as I could sing. And this might sound like it's a kind of a cool thing, but let me tell you, I grew up in a tiny town on the res, and this was not a cool thing. It was kind of weird, and it was kind of nerdy, and it basically attached strobe lights to the bully target that I wore to school every single day. But as the child of a chronically ill parent, and often dramatically so, Music became my safe place. It was a way to tend my spirit, and it was a means to express the unspeakable. And over time, I learned that sharing my music was not just a way of sharing the music, it was a way of also sharing that gift. And then the work began. And I worked, and I studied. I found the teachers I needed to improve. I found the teachers that I needed to survive all for one purpose and intent. My vulnerable heart and soul in a room full of other hearts, letting music come through for us all. So three days later, and many, many, many conversations later, there my beloved and I stood, loitering in the fading Portland light like blades of grass pushing through concrete. My heart clenched in stuttering gasps of absolute joy for Michael's opportunity and abject fear over what that might mean for me. We called the venue, disconnected. We called our contact for the gig, no answer. So we got back in the van, we sat for a minute, and we began the drive to Spokane. It was a quiet journey. And somewhere along the midnight stretch of road in that little bit of privacy that such times can give you, 
I let myself cry. And then as life itself had taught me, I surrendered. Did it feel like a sacrifice in the moment? Absolutely. But sometimes you just got to let yourself step into the river and let it take you where you are obviously meant to be. And however prodigal we may have been, Spokane welcomed us home. Literally by the next morning, we were surrounded by friends in our favorite coffee house and had been offered a place to live within hours. And within two weeks, Michael had begun one of the most challenging years of his life, pulling the best of himself he possibly could to be the teacher that he wanted to be. And I was most assuredly flopping around awkwardly in that stage that always precedes growth. And I have grown. And I have put down roots. Professionally, personally, musically, spiritually. All those lessons that have all happened here and grown from this soil. And I think the one lesson that is most critical to this Crossroads story is this that just one heart in a room seeking a means to express the unspeakable is as powerful a ripple as a thousand. Performing and songwriting is still my absolute passion, but teaching has become my passionate service. Just two people in a room letting music come through for us all. Thank you. Thank you, Kellerin. I'm sure many in the audience, myself included, have that kind of similar experience or feeling of like waking up 10 years later and being like, oh, right, Spokane's my home. <laughs> this is where I live. <laughs> Our next storyteller has a tale to tell about some unexpected generosity discovered in an unlikely place. Please welcome to the stage Anthony Schoen. So I believe in angels. And some of us are fortunate enough that our lives are touched by an angel. The lights were bright, kind of like right now. TVs were blaring, people were rushing around, and my feet hurt. I was 19 years old, and I was working at Best Buy. <laughs> I was completely lost in thought because I had just received a letter from the University of Washington that uh, I had not been accepted to the School of Engineering. This was incredibly difficult for me because I had never failed at anything in my life. And I put all my eggs in one basket. I wanted to go to, to, to UW. Uh, that's, that's what I wanted. I toured their campus, and I loved it. And I wanted to be an engineer. And I thought that was the best way to do it. Well, Gonzaga was my backup plan, but it was incredibly expensive. And I didn't know how was, how was I, I going to pay for it. Um, still hadn't figured that out quite yet. And I looked up, and Margaret was walking towards me. She was, Margaret's a, little short lady with white hair, early 70s, and she had the most radiant smile you could imagine. Uh, it's the kind of smile that when she walks in a room, it just eases all worry and completely calms you. And all of that pain and worry completely washed away. And she, her and I had built our relationship over the last few, few years, the few years prior to this, uh, I had sold her a camcorder at Best Buy, and that's when we first met. And, <laughs> and we had kind of just become friends over the years. And she was there not to buy a TV for me, not to buy something. She was there because she was genuinely interested in what my decision was for school. Uh, and she had come to find out what, what I was doing. I broke the news to her and told her how devastated I was. I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do now. How, how was I going to pay for this? And she said, well, maybe, maybe it wasn't meant to be. You know, maybe you were meant to go somewhere else. And she, she asked me, well, 
why don't you why don't you know how you want to go why why you want to go to Gonzaga? And I told her because I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. And without batting an eye, she asked me, "Well, how much do you need?" And that's a a very weird question, even though we were kind of kind of close <laughs> for anybody to ask. <laughs> so I I just kind of was like, "Well, I I have some scholarships and some grants, but I don't really know how I'm going to pay for it." Um, and she again said, "Well, how much do you need?" And was going kind of through this internal battle. Well, like maybe it's okay, I tell her. So I told her, uh, and she said, well, how about I just write you a check? <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a weird, it was very weird. I was totally speechless. Uh, not only was I completely speechless, but I was going through kind of an internal separation of, on one hand, I was completely relieved. Because this huge weight had been lifted off my shoulders because there's now a way I can go to school. But the, the much stronger hand was, why would someone want to give me money? And what do they want? Nobody gives money without wanting something in return. Uh, so I asked her, why would you want to give me, give me this money? And she said one of the single most impactful things anybody's ever told me, because you're going to do something great someday, and I want to be a part of that. And that has molded who I am today. Uh, it's, it, it, it set this goal for me to be something great and to do something great, but not just in my life, but also just to people, just being nice to people. She's the, the most selfless person I've ever met. And this was a, an a, a unbelievable act of generosity. So I asked her, of course, can I think about this a couple days? It's a crazy decision. Uh, and <laughs> I, t I talked to my family, I prayed, and I just tried to figure out, you know, is this what I do? Long story short, I, I, I did accept the check, and I attended my first year at Gonzaga. Um, towards the end of my first year, we went in together and to Wells Fargo and sat with a loan officer. Really wasn't sure why we were doing this. Um, but we took out a loan together for my next years at school, and she sent me checks every month that I would then pay my tuition on. And again, I didn't really know why we were doing this, the, but the loan was in my name. I didn't realize this until I bought my first car, and then I bought my first house. And she set me up to have exceptional credit as a recent graduate. She knew what she was helping me with before I knew. And, you know, all these amazing things, I can thank, you know, her for for getting me to school or getting me to where I am today, but she's also given me so much more. Uh, she has given me a new, a new set of eyes to, of how I view people um, and how I interact with people. You know, I was very curious after all of this, well, why would she, why would she do this? I still, still don't understand this completely today, but I asked her at, after I graduated, how can I ever repay you for this? And she said, all I want is for someday when you're more fortunate that you pay it forward. And I, I, I work for that every day by being nice and humble to the people around me, or I, I try. And I look forward to the day that I can actually help someone on a more grand scale. The, this has been a, a, a really incredible, I mean, it's been an amazing moment in my life. And I always think, can you imagine what our world would be like today if every one of us was nice to just one stranger? Just one person. Whatever the act is. It doesn't have to be paying for someone's school, but if you just told someone they were doing a good job or thanked them for what they were doing. Margaret was my angel. You know, and, and as we leave tonight, I want to challenge everybody here that in the next week, you perform one act of kindness. And, and maybe it's you tell someone that they did a good job in helping you. Or maybe it's just thanking them. Or maybe you have, you're, you're fortunate enough that you can actually help someone and pay for their school. <laughs> Whatever it is, I, I, I encourage everybody to try that. Thank you. Thank you, Anthony, for that inspiring story. 
I wish they had told us in art school that all you needed to do to get a benefactor was to work at Best Buy. <laughs> Our last storyteller of the evening, uh, Kent Hoffman, is going to share with us an account of um, really wrestling with the greatest questions a human can ask of himself. And it's a story that, honestly, I haven't stopped thinking about since I heard it in rehearsals. So you're in for a treat. Um, please join me in welcoming Kent Hoffman to the stage. So, it had been 105 degrees every day for three weeks. Evenings got down to about somewhere between 80 and 85. And my head had felt like it was filled with cotton for the last two months, enough so that I could barely hear people speak. I was in a clinical depression and had been for five months. And I was walking down Greenleaf Boulevard in Whittier, California, a town I'd been born in and did not any longer live in. And I was passing the church that I'd been christened in when I was a baby. It's a Sunday evening, and I am certain at that point that I will not be alive by Thursday by my own hand. Now let me back up a bit. I'm a clinical uh, psychology student, and at this point I'm working in a women's prison in Southern California. And I'm working in the psychiatric unit with women who were there for murder. And every woman there had murdered somebody, their husband, their boyfriend, their next door neighbor, their infant child. And the despair that they were feeling was a despair I ended up beginning to feel as well. Turns out despair is a communicable disease. And I was becoming increasingly diseased. Now to back up further, my first clinical professor, Frank Kemper, had said, every person you will ever meet has infinite worth. And when he said that, my life shifted absolutely, you know, almost upside down. Because the one skill set I feel like I have in this life is I can see infinite worth. Before that, I didn't know it existed. After that, I couldn't not see it. Waiter, waitress, checkout counter. It's an ability to look at people and see forever. And because it's not a belief, it's a, it's a reality. Every person has infinite worth. The trouble was that I was working with these women who were remarkably pained and wonderful human beings. And I grew to love each of them. And I saw that I had nothing to offer in terms of the pain they were in. And they were languishing, and I began to languish. And with that came this existential despair of what is going on here? What kind of a world do we live in? What kind of a universe is this? So back to Whittier and back to walking down the street and passing my church and deciding to go up the steps, open the door. It's a Sunday afternoon. The sanctuary is completely dark, except for a light shining on a silver cross. And I start to laugh at the absurdity of a God in a universe in which this kind of pain exists with no apparent answer. And I decide to sit down, and I do. And again, I'm alone in this sanctuary. And I'm still kind of chuckling to myself at the absurdity of people who could believe in God. And then, absolutely unbidden, absolutely, absolutely surprising to me, 
it's like a volcano starts bubbling up inside of me. And I start screaming in a way I would have never imagined possible. And I'm saying, you motherfucker! You motherfucker! Why? And I'm trembling. And I'm overwhelmed with this incredible rage. And I start naming these women, Patricia, Leslie, Latoya. What about them? They have infinite worth. And there's nothing. And then comes another surprise. Come to think of it. So do I. And I don't think I'd ever realized that before. And instead of surrender, I said, you motherfucker, do something. Do something. And the cotton was suddenly gone. It was very quiet in the sanctuary. And for two days, the cotton feeling was gone. There was almost a sense of peace. And in the third day, I got depressed again. But I decided to live another week. And I was back in my, uh, at, at work at the prison, and I was in a friend's office, and I was waiting for him to come back, and I suddenly just stand, surprising myself a third time, and I pull a book off the shelf absolutely randomly. And it's a book about, but not by, Viktor Frankl, about this Jewish Holocaust survivor who had changed the lives of many. And I, I opened to this page and I began to read the following. We were at work in a trench. The dawn was gray around us, gray was the sky above, gray the snow and the pale light of dawn, gray the rags in which my fellow prisoners were clad, and gray their faces. I was again conversing silently with my wife, or perhaps I was struggling to find the reason for my sufferings, my slow dying. His wife had died in Auschwitz a year before. In a last violent protest against the hopelessness of imminent death in this archipelago, I sensed my spirit piercing through the enveloping gloom. I felt it transcend that hopeless, meaningless world, and from somewhere I heard a victorious yes in answer to my question of the existence of an ultimate purpose. At that moment, a light was lit in a distant farmhouse which stood on the horizon as if painted there in the midst of the miserable gray of this dawning morning in Bavaria. And I heard the words, the light shines in the darkness. For hours I stood hacking at the icy ground. The guard passed by, insulting me, and once again I communed with my beloved. More and more I felt that she was present that she was with me. I had the feeling that I was able to touch her, able to stretch out my hand and grasp hers. The feeling was very strong. She was there. Then at that very moment, a bird flew down silently and perched just in front of me on the heap of soil which I had dug up from the ditch and looked steadily at me. For the first time in my life, I was able to understand the meaning of the words. The angels are lost in perpetual contemplation of an infinite glory. I turn the page and I begin to read an account of a nun who talks about an immense depression she has been in for months. And then here's the words, God wants to build a cathedral, but to do that, God must first dig a very deep basement. And in that moment, I knew I was no longer alone in my suffering. Now, for those of you who know me, my life is not a cathedral. 
but my life is blessing upon blessing and goodness within goodness far beyond comprehension, and so much gift has come my way in these 47 years since that August night. Two postscript moments. One, years later, I was in therapy and realized I wasn't yelling at God that night. I was yelling at two men, both fathers, my biological father who had left my mother while she was pregnant, hence the word motherfucker, This probably won't make it on NPR, by the way. <laughs> and my stepfather, who was actually quite sadistic, hence the word motherfucker. Three years after this event, two good friends of mine that I had recently made, Martina and Randolph Sasnet, who lived in Santa Barbara, invited me to visit them so I could meet a friend of theirs who was in town to give a lecture from Germany. And I spent the morning in the spring of 1975 walking on the beach in Santa Barbara with their good friend, Viktor Frankl. The poet Rumi, the mystic Rumi, 800 years ago said, thirst is proof of water. Infinite worth is proof of infinite response. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for that story. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate all of the storytellers' willingness to be vulnerable and brave on stage. Let's again give them a big round of applause. I also want to thank you for showing up tonight on a very cold February evening when you could have been at home on a couch in a blanket watching Netflix. Instead, you decided to show up and share in this experience with us tonight. If you were moved by these stories and think that you would like to participate in future shows, I encourage you to go to the Pivot website, pivotspokane.com, and contact the organizers um, to either nominate yourself or somebody else who you think might do a good job up here on stage. In fact, if you were involved in organizing tonight's show, could you wave a hand or stand up? And let's, let's give them a round of applause as well. Thanks to Spokane Public Radio for taping today's show. I mean, secretly in my heart, I hope they do put Kent's uh, story on, including the cursing. Awesome. Yes. Um, and yeah, if you want to hear uh, the past uh, performances, you can find that on Spokane's Public Radio under the Bookshelf Program. Again, thank you for letting me MC. This has just been a pleasure. Appreciate it. And we hope to see you back here with our new stories and our new storytellers. I think the next one's going to be in the springtime. We do these quarterly throughout the year. May 2nd, perfect, all right. Thank you, good night, drive home safely, we appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs>